So I, I'm going to ask you this morning as we start, anybody ever see that show Undercover Boss? Yeah, pretty neat. So like the higher up of a company, like the, the owner or the CEO or whatever of a big company goes and works at a local store and disguises himself and um, listens to the people gripe and complain about those crazy owners and um, sometimes they come down pretty hard on these folks. Sometimes they reward them because they see that they're working hard and they need help and they can't make it on what they're doing. Sometimes it's really mushy-gushy emotional and all that kind of stuff. But the, the intriguing thing to me there is the thought of the boss listening to people but them not knowing that it's the boss. That's a pretty neat concept. I, I like to shake the hand of the man that thought of that show. That's pretty neat. Um, I, I, did some, I did my time in uh, some retail management, and it was like doing time. But <laughs> for those of you that are in it, I feel you. I, I understand. I did it for a long time. And a lot of times, I'd get into it with a customer, and they would pull out their trump card. I want to speak to the manager, to which I would say, you got him. Yeah. And then they'd say, well, I want to talk to your boss then. Okay, let me give you his number. And then they'd get what they wanted because my boss would capitulate, and I'd say nasty things about him after I talked to them. But it, it was always neat to do that because they didn't know that they were talking to the one in charge. And they, they just knew that the one in charge was going to make things right. The word is authority. And it's a lost concept in our day. And what we're going to talk about today I think is very, very, dare I say very important And I would really appeal to the younger folks here today. Please listen, not to me, but to to the Bible. And understand this concept of authority. So that you might know who you're talking to, who you're dealing with. Especially when we're talking about Jesus. When we're talking about uh, the God that we sang about this morning. Who is in charge of everything. And we're going to talk about that a lot today. So I would ask you to kind of... Perk your ears up, younger folk. That's anybody that's, well, I'm 45, so let's go on lower than that. If you're, um, if you're if, yeah, if you're under 70, you need to really listen to this message today. Over 70, just dismiss me all outright, out of hand. So our uh, public reading today is going to be the same as it was last week. It's going to be Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Our focus today is going to be verses 5 to 17, since we covered 1 through 4 last week. So if you would, please stand. And again, to respect the authority of the Word of God. And we just stand just to go, we recognize that this is important. So, the Word of God for the people of God in the power of the Spirit of God. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. 
And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Let's pray. God, we need your help this morning. We need your help so that we might see your authority, that we might see the authority of your word, and that we might be submissive people. Submissive to you, submissive to one another, submissive to the needs of the culture around us. Help us, God to see and know authority. And we ask it in the name of the one who has all authority, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So again, we're going to uh, focus on verses 5 through 17. If you weren't with us last week, we started into chapter 8, which is post-Sermon on the Mount. And what we said was Jesus is in this chapter, is showing His miracle-working power. And we talked, it was neat, uh, Wednesday night we talked about the difference between miracles and providence. Um, Providence is God using natural means to bring about His will in our everyday lives, and we might not really see it as something majestic, but it's God working. Miracles, on the other hand, is God going outside the laws of nature and doing something that wouldn't normally be done. So the best picture I've ever heard of Providence is Washington crossing the Delaware. It was very fortuitous and providential that the fog was thick so that he couldn't be seen. Was the fog a miracle? No. It was Providence. It was thick fog. It was natural fog. It wasn't like a wall of fog that was made out of bricks of fog. It was just regular fog and there was a lot of it. Okay, That's Providence. What we saw Wednesday night was... God rained hailstones out of heaven and killed most of the army and made the sun stand still in the sky and the moon so that they didn't move for like a whole day. That's miraculous. Okay? And what we're seeing in chapter 8 is Jesus working miracles. Miracles of healing. We'll get to a place where He calms a storm. He's casting out demons. He's doing things that are outside the natural laws of the earth. And in doing so, he is showing himself to be the king. 
the king of the heavens, the king of the kingdom of the heavens, the king of the earth, the king who has all authority. And so what we're going to see today, we're going to see three pockets of miracles um, as he heals a centurion servant, as he heals Peter's mother-in-law, and he heals many others. Okay, Jesus healing these people is miraculous. Now, we, we, and I don't want to stay too long on this, but we talked Wednesday night again, which I, again, I keep going back to that. I don't know that I've ever seen a miracle, but I know that Jesus can work them because we see them here this morning in the written word. And if we believe that this is a historical account, which it is, we can say that Jesus has worked and therefore can work miracles. So I don't have to see one to know that this is true. I base my, my knowledge of Jesus' miracle working ability on what I see in the Word. And if I never see a miracle with my two eyes, there's no doubt in my mind that Jesus has the power to work miracles. And that's important for our faith because we can go chasing miracles and we should not. We have everything we need in the Word of God to place our faith in the miracle working power of Jesus. So, we're going to work through uh, verses 5 through 17. Like I said, we, we talked about the leper last week. Today, we start with a centurion. But I want to do something like I did last week in that I want to share Luke's account of this miracle so that we can supplement some things and bring them into our study. So, in addition to what we just read out of Matthew, let me read Luke 7, 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me and I say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So two complementary accounts of the same event. And we'll be drawing some things in from Luke as we work through Matthew 8, 5 to 17. A lot to cover. So here we go. Matthew 8, 5 and 6. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Oh, that's all. Let's stop there. So, as we combine these accounts, Matthews and Luke's, we're going to see some things uh, that are different, but not opposite, okay? Matthew says that Jesus had entered Capernaum. Remember, remember, Capernaum, we had said way back when, was the base of Jesus' operations, kind of like his hometown. We'll see later, though, that he doesn't have a house. He says he doesn't have a place to lay his head. Uh, But this is where he centered his work, and this is in the northern part of the land of Israel at that time. 
uh, away from, his, uh, from Jerusalem and the religious center. This is up on the Sea of Galilee, and this is where he would call a lot of his disciples from and uh, do a lot of his work. So this, as he comes into Capernaum, is kind of like coming home okay, for him. And as he came, Matthew says, a centurion came to him. Now, let's, let's do some math. Anybody ready to do some math? Yay! Any guesses of how many men a centurion was over in the army? Century, which is a hundred years. So this man was over a hundred men. His squadron, his platoon, whatever they called it, had a hundred men and he was the one who was responsible for directing these 100 men. Now he though, he though, he though, I like that. However, he was part of the Roman army and there was more than 100 men in the Roman army. So he was stationed there in Capernaum to oversee his 100 men, but he reported to people who were above him of how he handled these 100 men. He was stationed there to oversee the military operations in Capernaum, which hopefully weren't many. They were just there. They kind of entrenched themselves in places just to show their authority. Now, John MacArthur points out that so many times what the Roman army would do is they would find local people to work with their army. Well, let me tell you what. There probably weren't many Jews who were going to cooperate with the Roman army. They hated the Romans. The Romans were oppressing them. The Romans were ruling them even though they gave them some freedom. So this guy was probably not a Jew. MacArthur says it's very possible that the centurion was a Samaritan because of the location, because of who lived there, and because of who the Roman army could draw in. Now, who were the Samaritans? We've talked about this a lot. They were the half-breeds. Okay, and half-breeds meaning they were half Jew, half something else. And they had come about <clears throat> after the, uh, the Israelites got deported by the Assyrians back in the 700s B.C. They kept some of the poorest of the poor in the land after they deported most people. And then these poorest of the poor Jews that got left intermarried with whoever came in there from the nations. So they weren't full-blood Jews. They were mudbloods for you Harry Potter fans. They weren't... Oh, that, that draws a reaction. <laughs> you bunch of pagans. <laughs> Anywho, the Samaritans were half-breeds, mudbloods. They, they, they weren't full-blood Jewish. Even though they might have practiced Judaism, possibly, let me tell you what, Jews hated Samaritans and probably vice versa too. And it's very possible, now the text does not tell us this, but it's very possible that the Romans were finding that these Samaritans were useful because they could enroll them in the army, they were local, and it's very possible that this centurion was a Samaritan. That We don't know that, but I think that's a good insight. Because Jews hated Samaritans and saw them as detestable. But this centurion, what we do know about him, we find some more information from Luke. Okay, so I'm going to read Luke 3 through 7. So when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they had come to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he's the one who built us our synagogue. 
And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. We can just stop there. So what do we learn about this guy from Luke's account? Because it's a little different than Matthew's account. Matthew says that the centurion asked Jesus for help. Well, if you follow the flow, it's really not him asking Jesus for help initially. And this gives us some insight into who he is. First, whether he was the, personally the one who asked Jesus for help or not is not contradictory. Okay? If I send somebody to ask somebody something for me, I'm asking the person. I'm just asking through somebody else. Some people might look at this and say, well, see, Matthew and Luke don't agree, so the Bible's not true. Really? That's the leap you're going to take because the guy actually sent somebody. Okay, so this is not contradictory. They were speaking for him, so he was asking Jesus for help. So I don't really see that as a big deal. But we do see that the centurion had some very close contact with the Jews, which makes me wonder if he was a Samaritan. But these Jews were kind of pragmatic, right? He sent some elders of the Jews to Jesus to make his request for him. Of course, elders were leaders. They were respected heads of families. And this centurion appealed to them, these elders, to do what he needed done. That means that he trusted them and he believed that they would help him. And why? Because verses 4 and 5, if you look back there, they like this guy. He's worthy. He loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. So this guy had put out some money, some effort, and he had built them their synagogue there in Capernaum. Now that's a big deal. We were gifted this building. We were deeded this building by the Mountain State Baptist Association. That's a big deal. Here's a building that you can meet in. Well, that's exactly what's happened here. This centurion has gifted this building, this synagogue, this place of worship to the Jews in Capernaum. But the synagogue was more than just a place of worship, even though they would meet there on the Sabbath for public worship. But it was a public center of life for the town. This is where the Jews would have their meetings, do their deals. They probably had potlucks. I'm sure they had baby showers. I don't know if they had baby showers. I'm just kidding. But they hung out there. This is where they congregated. This is where the, 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 the town would come together. And this centurion had had this building built for the Jews. If he didn't build it himself, I don't know. Now, why do you figure he had done that? Could have been politically motivated. Maybe he's trying to keep the peace. And he's thinking, I could probably buy some peace if I build him a building. Maybe. Okay. Um, could have been a peace offering. I know you hate us, but will you let me show you that I care about you? Or he could have genuinely been concerned for or about the Jews and their religion. He might have even been a practicing Jew. We don't know. Either way, this man had earned the Jews' favor by treating them kindly. And the Jewish elders say that he loved their nation. He was for them in their mind and he loved them. And so the Jews thought that he deserved to have this request honored because he had honored them. Now, back to Matthew chapter 8, verse 6. He says, or they say to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. 
So this guy, what he wants done, he's got a servant who was lying at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Now this says a lot about the guy too. Because servants were really like property. Ox, sheep, hammer. I mean, that's what a servant was. They were tools. They were implements. And a lot of the, 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 the Roman law specifically said, treat your servants like equipment. They got no rights. But this guy cared about this servant. So, I mean, we're painting some shades in here that show, and this guy seems to be a pretty good guy, okay? He didn't treat his servant like property. He was concerned not just with the paralysis, but also with his suffering, the fact that he says he's suffering terribly. He was wanting this servant to be healed, it would seem, for the servant's sake, because it seems like he really cares about the servant, Something else that's indicative of who the servant is, what does he call Jesus? Lord. Now that can be a generic word for sir, but it doesn't appear to be here. Okay, It can be used for God, Lord, or sir, Lord. Indication is this is much more just like the leper last week who called Jesus the same thing, who came worshiping. This guy comes verbally saying, I recognize you as the Lord. God. It's a word indicating that this man saw Jesus as not only a superior, probably the superior. So did he recognize Jesus as God? It's very probable from the way this is worded. And we could spend a lot more time here in 5 and 6, but we got to move on because we got a lot of verses today. And he, Jesus, said to him, the centurion, or to those who were sent, I will come and heal So Jesus responds to this request and says, I will come and heal him. The NIV states it in the form of a question. Shall I come and heal him? Now, I don't know which is right. I don't really trust the NIV, so I'm going to stick with the ESV. But the fact that I said it, I don't trust it, okay? Um, The people that translated it are Greek scholars, and they're smarter than I am, and I don't trust them. Anybody that likes the NIV, sorry. Not nearly inspired version. That's what the NIV is. I, I kid. It's, it's a joke, kind of. So, But, but this, the fact that, that they could pose it as a question in the NIV makes it kind of peculiar wording to me. Jesus didn't say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, or hey, well, let's just deal with that. It's kind of like he's throwing something out there, kind of setting the stage for something. It's almost like Jesus knew what was going on. Right. The omnipotent, omniscient one kind of knew what was going on. So was he testing this guy? Was he setting him up? I I don't know. Did he know what the guy would say? Maybe. But Jesus is at least showing that there was some distance between him and the servant. He wasn't there yet. Okay, shall I come or I will come and heal him? Do you want me to come to your place and heal your servant? Whatever the reason Jesus is saying or asking it this way, the answer from the centurion is a humdinger. Verses 8 and 9. Anybody ever heard humdinger before? That's classic. Listen to this. This, Listen. Perk your ears up. Look at me. Pay attention. Listen to what this guy says to Jesus. Because this is marvelous. But 
The centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Ding, 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 right answer. Yes, yes, and yes. You're like, what is up with you, dude? Calm down. I can't. This guy and this answer can change your life. Can change my life. Wow. There, I said it. Wow. And there are a lot of exclamation points in my manuscript. Ding, ding, ding. Right answer. Yes, yes, yes. Wow. The exclamation points. You know, we spend a lot of time in, in our discussions, in our messages, discussing people failing in the Bible because there's a lot of that, right? Eve eats the fruit. Oh, Eve. David has Uriah killed and does other things. Oh, David. Peter denies Jesus. Oh, Peter. And on and on and on and on. And it's all written for our instruction, right? But there are times in the Bible when people get it right. And when there are these things, we need to take notice. Okay? And this centurion, he gets it right. I mean right. And there's so much here. His reply to Jesus, asking or stating that he's going to come and heal this guy's servant, he says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now this is a peasant Rabbi walking around Nowhereville in Capernaum. And this guy says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now the Jews had said this guy was worthy. Why? Because he loves our nation and he built us our synagogue. But this guy didn't have the appearance or the thought in his head or in his heart that he was worthy or that those things made him worthy. They did nothing to qualify him for Jesus to even come under his roof. He said, I am not worthy. I might be a good guy. I might be a nice guy. I might have built this building, but I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. He addresses Jesus as Lord and then acknowledges that he's not worthy of Jesus being in his home. Maybe this is why he had sent a delegation instead of coming himself. And he kind of says that. He said, I didn't think I was worthy, so I sent these folks. But he humbles himself and he exalts Jesus in this statement. Lord, you're Lord, and I'm not worthy. My name is not worthy. And your name is Lord. It's a good start. I don't deserve you, Jesus. That's a good start. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then this. Oh, look at the rest of verse 8 and 9. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes. And to another, come and he comes. And to my servant, do this and he does it. And I'm telling you, if we can get a hold of this in our lives today, we are going to be much better off than we were before we came in this building. The centurion calls on Jesus to only say the word. 
He didn't want a magic trick. He didn't want Jesus performing for him. He just said, just just say it. It's almost as if the Word of God was sufficient. He's asking for Jesus to verbally command that his servant be healed from where he was. From right there where they were, which was not in the centurion's house. I don't know how far they were off here, but they weren't at the house yet. It doesn't matter. Because this guy recognized that Jesus could command that his servant be well wherever, whenever. Just say the word. And then look at verse 9. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And yes, I've read this multiple times on purpose. As a member of the Roman army, this man was under authority, and he had men under authority, under his authority. He also had servants who were under his authority. Now, what is authority? We've talked about this many times in the past. The simplest definition is two words, right and might. If you have authority, you have the right to tell somebody what to do, and you have the might to enforce it if they don't, or the right or the might to uh, reward them if they do it. Okay? Which usually, if somebody in authority tells you to do something, they don't reward you for doing it. You just do it. And they're like, because I said. I've used the illustration before. If I send Asa up to tell John to clean his room, and John goes, whatever. And then Asa brings out the trump card. Dad said, clean your room. Ooh. Well, that changes things. Asa's got no authority. Sorry, bud. It's true. And in our household, I have authority. Actually, I have authority over my wife. I have authority over my kids. Be careful, men. Right and might, it means ruling right and might. Authoritative authority, if that's proper. It's probably not. Anybody current or former military? I know Don is. Anybody else former or current military? They have rankings in the military. Stars and bars, right? Determines who you listen to and who you don't. Privates don't tell anybody what to do. They just get told what to do. After a little while, you become a private first class. That's a little bit more distinguished. And then it goes up and up and up through the ranks. And your rank determines the authority that you have. The higher the rank, the more people that have to listen to you and do what you say. Now, we don't have rankings in life. But we do need to recognize who's in authority. This centurion was over 100 guys. Now 100 people. He's a company commander in our today's army. 100 people had to report to this man and do what he said. That doesn't have anything to do with his home and his servants who had to listen and do what he said. They were under his authority. But the Roman army had authority. Authority over this man. So there were people who told the centurion what to do as well. He was under their authority. And here in this interchange, the centurion shows that he understands. And this is what we've got to understand. He understands that Jesus has authority over the illness that's affecting his servant. 
Now get that. He understood that Jesus could say the word. And whatever was causing this paralysis would have to obey what Jesus said. So if it was a microscopic bacteria or a virus, they'd have to obey what Jesus said. If it was rogue cells, those cells had to obey Jesus' word. This guy understood Jesus to be in authority over all things. Is that not what we sang about this morning? Sovereign on the mountaintop, the ocean floor, wherever, whenever, in my life? R.C. Sproul made the famous comment that there's no maverick molecules in the universe. And that's true. They all obey the one who has all authority. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it is this concept of authority that the centurion understood and banked on for his servant's health when he petitioned Jesus. So the question is, how would Jesus respond? Oh my. When Jesus heard this, verse 10, He marveled and said to those who followed Him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus was amazed at this guy. Now, let me ask you something. You figure it's easy to amaze Jesus? What's something that has amazed you? You might watch a sporting event and somebody does something that's just crazy. Whoa! It's amazing! What else amazes you? I wouldn't think that Jesus, who is omnipotent, omniscient, God in the flesh, is amazed at much. He's amazing. But I wouldn't think that he's walking around going, Whoa! Look at that! Whoa! But this guy says this and Jesus goes, Whoa! Whoa! Jesus is awfully smart. <laughs> but this guy and his grasp of authority amaze Jesus. And I think Jesus was amazed that a person could fully know and understand that Jesus is in this position of authority. And being amazed, Jesus looks at those following him and says, Truly I tell you, amen and amen, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. So I don't know if that means that he turned and talked to the crowds who were following him. Remember we talked about that? There are crowds following him and there are his disciples. Whether he was talking to the crowds or just to his disciples. It makes more sense to me that he was talking to his disciples saying, Guys, write that down. Maybe the elders, possibly. But he's talking to somebody and he says, I want you to see this example. I want you to look at this man and listen to his words and see them as truth and see that it makes my jaw drop open. He's saying in a way, look at this. Get a hold of this. He says he hasn't found anyone in Israel, anybody amongst the people of God with such great faith. This grasp of Jesus' authority is a broad statement of faith that Jesus is who Jesus says that He is. 
This itinerant Jewish rabbi walking around preaching and teaching and healing was in authority. Over what? Over whom? Well, if you listen to the centurion, over everything and everyone. And Jesus says, now that is faith. And Jesus hadn't seen it from anyone in Israel where he should have seen it. Because they had the writings. They had all these accounts of all that Jesus had done, of all that God had done. And they didn't recognize Jesus as God, so they didn't see him and understand that he was the one who was in authority. But this Gentile, maybe even Samaritan, centurion, exercises that faith like it's his natural breathing. And this amazes Jesus to the point of telling his followers that he hasn't seen this kind of faith in all of his wanderings amongst God's people. And since the Gentiles are getting it and the Jews aren't, well... There's rewards and consequences, verses 11 and 12. I tell you, Jesus says, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that doesn't sound very nice, does it? After declaring the centurion's faith to be amazing, Jesus tells of the rewards that will bring to him and to those who share that faith. These faithful will come from east and west. East and west of where? Of where they were there in Israel. East and west of Israel is where the pagans live. It's where the Gentiles live. Not where the Jews live. So they're going to come from east and west. And I could just imagine the Jews going, Huh? We're we're God's people. And Jesus is saying plainly, the pagan country, the Gentile places, will have people who will come down, who will come and enter the kingdom of heaven and sit down next to the patriarchs, the Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they'll take their seat beside them in the kingdom of heaven. The Gentiles will. The pagans will. Now Jesus had spent Matthew 5, 6, and 7 upsetting the Jewish apple cart completely. You've heard it said this, but I say to you, don't be like them, the Jews, the religious Jews who are doing this, but do this. And now it's like he's just digging the knife in and twisting it. There'll be Gentiles in the kingdom of heaven? Yep. Surely not. Oh, surely so. Based on the kind of faith that the centurion has, trusting in the authority of Jesus for their salvation, yes, there will be Gentiles in heaven. Just like Abraham, who is the father of the faithful, whose faith was counted to him as righteousness. But, Jesus says, the subjects of the kingdom, the Jews, the people of God, will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's saying, you're going to hell, religious Jew. Not because you're a religious Jew, but because you haven't placed your faith in me, like the centurion who has. You reckon they liked him saying that? No. This is the kind of stuff that gets him killed. The Gentiles will go to heaven by faith and the Jews will go to hell based on their own performance. Take note of that. And it all revolves around who they believe Jesus to be. Just like it does for us. 
And then after turning to the Jews for a bit in this little discussion, Jesus turns back to the centurion. And I don't have 13 up there, but let me read it to you. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Jesus said it, it was done. The cells lined up or the disease left or just dissipated, disappeared. I don't know what happened. Can you imagine being that? The servant implies that he's a little boy, by the way. Can you imagine being that little boy and you're laying there and you're suffering, suffering terribly and all of a sudden you're not? These things work. I don't know if he was arms, legs, I don't know, quadra, I, a pair, I, I don't know. But all of a sudden everything that felt bad didn't feel bad anymore and everything that wasn't working started working. Was it his faith that did it? No, he didn't know what was going on. He just felt better. All I know is that these things weren't working and now they're working. Hey. Woo! Yeah. Where's the boss? Oh, he's up the road talking to some guy. Oh. We're going to go tell him that you're feeling better. Okay. However far away he was, the word of Jesus spanned the distance and the illness left. Just like the leprosy last week. He touched him and the leprosy left. Jesus works miracles. Jesus works miracles. But he's not done. 14 and 15. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. So Jesus has healed a leper in this account. He's healed this paralyzed slave. And now he walks into Peter's house where he's hoping to put his feet up a little bit and just rest. But Peter's mother-in-law is sick. She's got a fever. Who knows what that's about? Could be anything. And he touched her hand. Bam. And healing virtue left him, went into her, and she rose and began to serve him. Jesus works miracles. Jesus has authority over this fever. But he's not done. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Let me tell you all what, Jesus is amazing. And I didn't say was. Jesus is amazing. I'll touch the leper because I'm going to make that leprosy go away. I'll speak the word to a paralyzed servant who's suffering terribly wherever he's at. It's done. Peter's mom-in-law, bam. Get up, lady. Somebody's got to cook the chicken. And she's like, yes, sir. And people hear about it, and they're bringing people with demons. People are possessed with demons. And Jesus says, get out. And they go. 
And they bring him everybody who's sick that they can bring him. And everyone that they bring to him, he heals them. I don't know the scope of that. Matthew doesn't tell us the scope of that. John says many, many, many more miracles Jesus did that if we recorded them all, we wouldn't have enough room to contain the books for all that he did. But I'm going to ask you this morning, do you recognize that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is our Savior, who will hold us fast, has authority over sickness, disease, demons? Today. Because He does. 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew has a familiar pattern of explaining some stuff that happened and then saying this was to fulfill this. If you go back to the birth and to the, when he went down to Egypt and came back to Nazareth, this was to fulfill this, this was to fulfill this. Here he's saying this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, which is Isaiah 53, 4. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now this does not refer to Jesus actually taking the infirmities and diseases into his physical body. When he touched the leper, the leprosy didn't leave the leper and go into Jesus. But it shows that Jesus saw these infirmities and he helped with them. He delivered people from them and was master over them. So his taking up and his bearing were shown in his active healing. He showed his authority over these things and he said, I'm going to make them go. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted is the full passage there. So what do we do with this? Hopefully a lot. I got three R's. It's a pirate day of application today. R. Rejects, replacement, and rule. Rejects, Replacement and rule. Rejects. How do we apply this today? First and foremost, rejects. Anybody here like being a reject? Anybody ever the last person picked when they're picking kickball teams on the playground? I guess I'll take Jason since he's all that's left. Thanks, man. I was like this big, y'all. Ball was bigger than me. I can laugh about it now. I've been in therapy for years. Rejects. It seems to me as we work through these passages, Jesus is finding the rejects. He's not healing Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and priests and Levites. He's finding the people that have been rejected. The outcast. The leper, this poor servant boy who was laying paralyzed in a Roman soldier's house. Some poor peasant Jewish woman who's got a fever. Not only that, Jesus is saying, the pagans, the people you've rejected Jewish people are going to come from the east and west and they're going to be the ones who are sitting beside Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
the ones you've rejected, those are going to be the ones who inherit the kingdom that you were supposed to inherit. The rejects. Jewish men would get up and they would pray every day, God, I thank you that I was not made a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That's true. Who did Jesus just heal? A Gentile's slave and a woman. I got good news for us this morning. Jesus is looking for the rejects. Me. He's looking for hearts and people in the middle of rural Appalachia to call into His kingdom, to reign and to rule with Him forever. (laughs) And this has always been His pattern. Why did He pick Abraham? Why did He call the people of the Jews? Not because you were great and mighty, but because you were the least among the nations. You want to know where God's working? Go to the least! Paul says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Amen. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God's looking for the rejects because they're not going to say, I did this. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the leper. Blessed is the paralyzed slave. Blessed is the fevered mother-in-law. Blessed are the demon oppressed. Well, that don't sound right, but it is. Because they're in a place where they know that they need Jesus. Are you? Am I? Because Jesus is looking for rejects. Second application point. Replacement. He bore our diseases. And He took our sicknesses upon Himself. Now we said that Matthew's saying that here in chapter 8, last week, leper, this week, what we saw was not Jesus actually taking those things upon Himself. He touched people. He spoke the word or drew near to them to make these maladies go away. But that was to foreshadow what He was going to do. Because you know what Jesus did? Jesus went to the cross and took the ultimate cause of all these sicknesses and diseases upon Himself, which was our sin. Your sin, my sin. I'm not saying you got sick because you sinned. That's not what I'm saying. But without the presence of sin in the world, there would have been no sickness, disease, or death. And Jesus was showing, I'm going to take this upon Myself, your sin, 
your main sickness is your sin. We're all sin sick. And Jesus would ultimately take that sickness upon Himself. Jesus would go to the cross and take my sin upon Himself. He would take our sins upon His body and bear the wrath of God for those sins so that we don't have to. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Listen, this is the gospel. You're a sinner. And Jesus took your sins upon Himself and bore the wrath of God in your place. Yes, He bore our sicknesses. Yes, He took our infirmities upon Himself. And I know some of you might be saying, well, that doesn't mean that I should be healed of everything? Nope. It doesn't. I know you can, will you? Remember that from last week? But it does mean that all of your sins are forgiven. And one day, you will stand whole before the presence of God, forgiven of all your sins, all these maladies gone, made whole, complete, perfect, in a glorified body just like Jesus' was. And we're going to worship God for eternity. We're going to reign and rule with God for all eternity because Jesus took our sins upon Himself as a replacement for us. And not only that, we're given His righteousness. He takes our sins and gives us His righteousness as a gift of grace. I wish I had more time to spend there. I don't because we've got one more application point and it's the big one. Rejects. Replacement. Rule. This is about authority. And this is the big deal. Now, what we just talked about is a big deal. But in our passage today... We're looking at authority. Right and might. Listen to me, please. We live in a world where God has set things up to operate under authority. His authority. All authority is from God. Let's go way back to Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. I might need to read that again. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities... Listen to me, young folks. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger 
who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, which is the partner of authority. Authority, submission, subjection. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Why? Because all authority is from God. Kids, the authority of your mother and your father comes from God. Wives, the authority of your husband comes from God. The authority of the government comes from God. Does that mean that they're always right? No. But what is your heart attitude toward these authorities? Does that mean that they always reward those who need rewarded and punish those who need punished? Nope. They miss it. They mess up. That doesn't mean that you can say, well, then I won't respond to the authority the way that I'm supposed to. All authority comes from God. You say, well, then God appointed Hitler. For this very reason, he told Pharaoh, I have raised you up that I might make an example out of you and get glory from you. God isn't up there going, oh, no, dictator. Didn't mean that for that to happen. that make God mean? It means that God can use even the sins of sinful men to accomplish His purposes. Because He set things up according to authority. i got something else to read. 1 Peter. This is the passage prior to the one we read just a minute ago. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. You want to know what the will of God is? That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The authorities in my life aren't fair. They're not nice. They're mistreating me. You've been called to this. Why? Because Jesus did the same. Well, it's not fair. No, it's not. And if your heart is only fighting for your rights in your home, in your marriage, in your job, with the government, you don't know anything about authority. 
And you are kicking against the very goads that God has given to push you forward toward Christ-likeness. Well, that don't feel good. No, it doesn't. And one day we will be rewarded for it. By the one who judges justly. Kids, I want you to start doing something. Actually, you know what? Everybody. Under 90 in here. I want you to start doing something. And I mean on purpose. Everywhere you go, I want you to ask yourself this question. Who is in authority here? Why would I do that? Because you need to know. And you need to submit to those authorities. School, home, Chick-fil-A, Walmart, the pool. Who's in authority here? Why? Because they're God's messengers. They're God's servants for your good. Well, what if they're not good? We've covered that. When you walk in your home today, ask yourself who is in authority here. And be subject to them. Because here's the good news. It's for your protection. It's for your good. Authority is not just somebody who's going to spank your butt if you get out of line. The person in authority is answerable to God for how they protect you. And if you adopt by the power of the Spirit of God, and it has to be by the power of the Spirit of God, an attitude that I'm going to be subject to the governing authorities in my life because I want to honor God, you're winning. And God is getting glory in your life. All of us will live the rest of our lives here on earth under somebody's authority. Will you subject yourself to that authority and serve that authority? Or will you kick against it and try to sneak and get what you want when you want because you want it or because you think you deserve it? You've missed Jesus off the map if that's your heart. And I would say evaluate yourself and see if you're in the faith or not. Last passage. And Jesus came and said to them, His disciples... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This centurion recognized that before this. Go, therefore, and command, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Your marching orders, Christian, come from the one who has all authority and he says, make disciples of all nations. Teach them to do what I've commanded you to do. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And know this, I who have all authority am with you to the very end of the age. Listen, if the one who has all authority has told you to do something and you're doing it, you can't lose. And so I'll say this as we close. Are you making disciples? 
purposefully? Under the authority of the command of Jesus Christ who has all authority? Is it a priority in your life? It's kind of a separate application point here. Because that's the one thing He said to do. The one thing He said to do. I have all authority, so go make disciples. And that word authority can literally mean out of my being. So the one who has all authority says it flows through me to you so that you'll go and make disciples. That's the whole point of the church. It's what we're supposed to be doing individually and corporately. Are we doing it? Kids, find the authority in your life and be subject to them. Adults, find the authority in your life and be subject to them. And understand that all authority comes from Jesus and He has called us to make disciples. And He calls rejects to do it. And He's given Himself as a replacement in our place so that we can do it. Recognize His rule and share it with all the nations. Let's pray. God, You have all authority. And we want to be subject to that authority and be faithful with what You've called us to do in our everyday lives and looking forward to the kingdom where You will reign supreme for eternity. God, I thank You that You have called a bunch of rejects into Your kingdom. Jesus, I thank You that You have been my replacement and are my replacement. And I thank You that You rule authoritatively over all things, every cell, every nation, every planet, the whole universe. We recognize Your rule and submit ourselves to Your authority. And if there be anybody here this morning who does not know You as Lord... Holy Spirit, convict them, show them that they're a sinner and that forgiveness for their sins only comes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross who died, was buried, and resurrected and who ascended into heaven and is seated at the place of honor and all authority in heaven today and who one day is coming back and will judge the nations with that authority. This is somber stuff, God. May we not toy with it. May we worship you because of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay in eat if you can.